0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, from Continuum. What is the right way to communicate an idea to people, to engage their minds, and to push them to consider ways of thinking that they haven't before? Well, from classroom professors to TED Talks, most of the ways we try to convey information to others depends on a charismatic expert taking the lead. But it's worth questioning whether accepting that hierarchical role of the expert means that we're too likely to stay in our comfort zone rather than experience new ideas and allow them to work on our brains. Someone who has thought a lot about this is Jessica Helfand. She's a Yale professor, a co founder of Design Observer, the author of the book Design, the Invention of Desire, and a recent laureate of the Art Directors Hall of Fame. Jessica came to Continuum in May to prototype a new, purposefully non hierarchical way of engaging with ideas and people. And she was kind enough to sit down afterwards with Continuum's Lee Moreau, principal in service and experience design, and resonance test producer Ken Gordon. They talked about ideas, the power of podcasting, and the interesting links that they have to therapy. It got pretty real towards the end there. If you'd like to hear where Jessica and Lee took their conversation once they thought recording was over, stay tuned for a bonus segment at the end of the podcast. But don't worry, they did approve its release after the fact.
1: Hello, Jessica. Hello, we. Uh, we just finished this crazy prototype of the next stage, which was a kind of podium-free interactive conversation to uh, engage with issues of design right here at Continuum uh, this morning with I don't know 50, 70 people. I forget. Yeah. Um, what? Quick reactions. How did? What did you? What did you think?
2: Uh, I think it went well. I'm a really bad judge of these things because I'm so, in the moment, invested in looking at every single person and making sure no one's falling asleep. Um, uh, I guess I'm like Bill Clinton that way. They used to say that you put Bill Clinton in a room with 100 people and 99 love him. He will spend all his time with the one who doesn't. Um, I'm trying to be mindful of that, Mm -hmm. Uh, but in answer to your question, I'm I'm, I'm really um, quite passionate about this idea, and I think uh, my, my first reaction is that it went quite well. Uh, I mean, we're very lucky to be here. It's a beautiful space. It's a beautiful, sunny spring morning here in Boston. People got up super early to be here by 8.30. Um, but the big change, the big shift is that there's no hierarchy physically, emotionally, intellectually, culturally.
1: That was one of the big questions that came up, which was this notion of hierarchy. Right. And is there, um, should we accept hierarchy? Is it, is it okay? Are we, as I think the way it was described, as primates, are we... You know, predestined to be comfortable with hierarchy. Um, I There's certain hierarchies in my life that I'm more comfortable with than others, but how right. do you feel I about mean, that? Right, I mean,
2: you know, you drive a car and the stoplight tells you stop. This is a hierarchy we have to pay attention to or we're all going to kill each other. Um, but I think there's imposed hierarchies and there's artificial ones. Um, I think hierarchy in design, I certainly come out of an editorial design background, and so I understand things like grids and infrastructures and armatures for laying out a book, or designing a poster or designing a product. But I think that the hierarchy that speaks of privilege or that speaks to um, uh, access uh, is really a problem. And I think where hierarchy can lead when it gets to a bad place is towards things like demagoguery. And my fear is that that's the kind of TED Talk model, that it's performance is fine if it's theater, performance is fine if it's sports, But why does performance have to happen in social engagement and in personal interaction? And that's where I found after this year teaching a class based on my book at Yale, the results were were just stunning to me because these were people who knew nothing about what I cared to talk about. And I mean, it was just a remarkable transformation. And I thought if people that knew nothing in 12 weeks could get to this place where their conversation changed, their engagement changed, their references changed, could we actually get it out of the classroom and try to have a conversation in a real place? And so that's what we tried this morning, and I'm hoping we can do it again.
1: So let's rewind that. Um, the origin or some of the origins for this probably date back decades, and uh, but, but more recently the work that you're doing at Yale School of Management. Talk about how the course that you taught there, kind of give an overview of what your, the way it was structured and what it's led in and the, and the way that it's led to this next stage concept.
2: So I published a book at the end of 20 uh, spring of 2016 called Design: The Invention of Desire. It's 12 chapters uh, about with one word titles with things like think about things like design and humility, design and authority, design and fantasy, design and consequence, design and solitude. Uh, And the semester at Yale is about 12 weeks long. So I was invited to come up with an idea for a course based on the book. But of course, what's interesting about this course is that I'm teaching it to people who are in the MBA program, not to people in the School of Art. So these are people who come from very different backgrounds from all over the world. Um, I had one painter. I had someone from the School of Public Health. Uh, So occasionally I had an architect. Occasionally they filter through from some other schools. But, But generally speaking, these are people who are not coming from the design world that I came out of. But the book doesn't just speak to those people either. And so it seemed a very kind of natural progression to think about how to teach this. So each week was on a different topic. Um, Each week began at the Yale Art Gallery or in one of the collections at Yale where they looked at work, real things, artifacts, evidence, paintings, uh, got out of this computer screen world of the protected environment of their building and really tried to engage with a world beyond their comfort zone. Some of the projects I gave them were very difficult, like um, uh, for the chapter on humility, they were obliged to go buy a package of adult divers and walk around with it and try to understand the relationship between design and shame. So that doesn't have to be a designer having the, asking those questions. That has to be a human being asking those questions. And that's really what the book's about, and that's really what the course became about. And so at the conclusion of 12 weeks of this, some weeks more successful than others, some weeks cataclysmic in their uh, kind of for the students' realizations that the world is a much bigger place than the protected environment of an MBA or really any student in a protected environment in an Ivy League, (laughs) ivory Tower school, they really, it, it obliged them to get ruthlessly objective about the world that they're going to inherit. And when I got towards the end of this uh, uh, semester, I started to think that maybe there's, there's relevance for this kind of practice outside the classroom. And so uh, here I'm here at Continuum, thanks to you and my, our friend Ken Gordon, with whom I was having conversations about what this meant to actually have a conversation about difficult issues without a stage, without a podium. And Ken, the wordsmith said, you should call it the next stage, which of course works on a lot of levels. Uh, So really as an evolutionary stage in practice, in a kind of really mindful understanding dialogue, listening, talking, reacting, no stage, no podium, no star worship thing, no microphones, just real people having honest conversations.
1: So this morning we had a really mixed population of people, a pretty wide variety of age demographics and clearly professional differences and, and, and backgrounds. I want to talk a little bit about this notion of abstraction because in the in the Yale context you're talking to MBAs at Yale School of Management at Yale University in the United States it things can get your your removal from the real world so sort to of speak is it can be incredibly rarefied at a place like that um, how did
2: another reason I'm here yeah to, to I mean that absolutely I mean I, I saw in that class though incredible diversity. Um, we had uh, you know, students, uh, I give them a project one week where they had to make a Facebook page for an ancestor. And this obliged them to understand the relationship between small, their small closed feedback loop of their media profiles, social media profiles, and the big world of big data. And a lot of interesting things came out. You know, here's my relatives in the Ottoman Empire. One student is uh, from Romania, and she's half Roma, but she looks like the parent who is more Caucasian and and she says her whole experience has been because she doesn't look like the Romani Uh, And she feels guilty about that and there's shame in that and yet it's a very visual palpable Point of entry for her in the world Uh, I have you know had other students who were you know on gender spectrums that were not exactly welcomed in the sort of binary representation of the balkanized schools at the university And then I had these uh, two or three students whose grandparents had been sort of dissident uh, political activists in China and died in prison because of their beliefs. They were all able to find a voice in that classroom at the business school talking about design. And I'm not teaching mindfulness meditation, right? I'm just talking about being honest, looking someone in the eye and having a conversation about something that's not comfortable. Uh, So I give them another assignment uh, where I give them a found shopping list and they have to basically go through and understand who made the list. The handwriting sloppy. Does that mean that they're not educated? Does they can't spell? Does that mean they're an immigrant? And nobody would say those things. And we started to talk about it, and then they said those things. There's, they're not bad words. They're they're reality checks, that sometimes speak to your own privilege or the sort of you know prismatic lens of your own experience. But if we don't privilege our own experience in understanding the experience of someone else, then we've basically digressed to such an extent that our humanity doesn't matter at all in the context of the things we're making for a world of our making or at least to which we're contributing as citizens of a larger planet.
1: So on the face of it, it sounds, to someone who is trained as a designer, an architect, I work here at Continuum, a design firm, this notion that you're basically having assignments where students are asked to both make and observe seems completely normative in many ways. Mm-hmm. But you're doing it in a way, and maybe for an audience that's not used to making and observing in the traditional sense or has perhaps moved away from that. So I wanna talk about Introducing this to that new population and and some of the discomfort that they might have felt along the way
2: They talk about was their discomfort We talked this morning Lee about failure a little bit in this conversation And I think it's interesting that even failure has become a buzzword. It's sort of failure TM right and so It's been sanctioned, right? It's been in a sense anesthetized because it's been pre-approved It's been it's been allowed into the lexicon of all the words we use that, you know, people feel I think gives them agency By proxy I use this word. I participate in this toolkit. I'm connected to the system I'm now okay. I'm now been I, I can leverage my fluency in this kind of artificial construct into some kind of novel innovative thinking. Now, I'm not saying that people in business don't have to figure out how to do spreadsheets and figure out financing. I mean, there's, there's clearly hierarchical things that have to happen and rules that need to be obeyed. But I think too often we rely upon these things and we come to kind of get lazy about these things. I had a student um, uh, this year, I, just, I also taught a class at the business school where I took 32 MBAs to Italy, to Milan to do a project with Prada. And I combined them with 32 designers and one of the mba students in my class came to me later and he said he didn't realize until this project that if you put a team of mbas together they're going to come up with essentially the same solution because they have been they've been taught to mine a certain kind of strategy process method call it what you will they're going to get up at basic they're going to e- evolve to basically the same place you put designers on the team and the conversation changes So, you know, I I talk about changing the conversation by where you have the conversation. And this is a a perfect example. In some cases, you have to migrate to a different country to have it or you migrate to the art museum to have it. But getting out of the close feedback loop, getting out of the comfort zone. I mean, I think we found, you know, sorry to ramble, but I think we found in the last election that, you know, if we don't go across the aisle and talk to people we don't understand, we're, we're doomed.
1: That's a. I can imagine that that would be a catalyst for um, thinking about a new way to practice.
2: And we're communicators, after all. Yeah,
1: I know you've been podcasting a lot recently. And yes. as somebody who's written extensively and for for years and, and, and has edited so much, um, talk about the role of of doing podcasting. How it changes your mode of practice? Does that afford you a different audience, different way of talking? Oh, it
2: absolutely does. I love podcasting. Uh, I love podcasting because it's not live. I hate live, I like, being, I like editing. Um, I love podcasting because, just as I loved this conversation this morning, the minute you put other people in the mix, vocabulary changes and you get a sort of a, a much more of a, a rich soup, like there's more flavors. Uh, I love podcasting because it's one of the few things we can do while we're doing something else. And in an age of multitaskers, where we tend to feel scattered and like short attention span theater is the way of the world, uh, you can be running and driving and doing all these other things and listening. Um, and because I love language, I love listening to other podcasts because it amplifies my own ability to kind of penetrate a world maybe beyond my own closed feedback loop. Uh, I have to say, in in full disclosure, I was trained as an actress before I became a graphic designer, and so getting to put on my actress voice and do those station identification things is is super fun. Um, we've gotten better at it. We've just recorded, I think, our 55th episode of The Observatory. Wow. Uh, Michael Bayruth and I have been podcasting since 2014. Um, we both travel a lot, so we take our microphones with us. Uh, we do it through GarageBand and Skype. We have a wonderful producer, Blake Esken, who also produces the new podcast we do out of Yale, which is a much more professionally recorded Uh, Enterprise, but um, I I love them and um, I sort of, you know, fulfills my Lifelong ambition to be a talk show host without having to get on stage and I think we already know how much I hate stages, so
1: Yes, but (laughs) you're so yes, but you're so good live And we saw that this morning and and frankly I'm witnessing that right now as we talk Uh, you're you're excellent in the live mode and you not this is not pure flattery, but you do have a way of constructing sentences that add up to something completely tangible and understandable that we can all recognize. Yeah, I, which is a, what a real skill. One of my students once
2: said, "You really you know how to land the plane." I don't know how to land the plane. I just I'm much better when it's we're at the same eye level. I just I like teaching seminars and not lectures. I liked what we did this morning and not being in a podium. Uh, I sometimes say I blame Quaker school because I sat around with. In, in conversant mode with people, with my teachers. Um, there's some, you can be respectful, you can listen, you can be mindful, you can get out of your own way. But the performance of the, the whirling dervish at the podium, I just don't think that it, what does it do? It, it, it perpetuates a cycle of idolatry. It amplifies a world in which us and them, the haves and the have nots, I don't understand how that gets us to a more communicative engagement with real people, honest conversation, real problems, real solutions. I don't know how we get there from there. And, and I was explaining this to my, um, she's going to have to listen to this, my wonderful therapist who listens to me talk about this endlessly, because of course it doesn't make any sense that I, I can teach, but I hate getting up on stage. And I was complaining one day to her that um, uh, my father, my dear, adorable father, um, called me a star. I said, oh, yes, well, they want you at Yale because you're a star. And I said, no, Dad, I, I, uh, no, not, I hate that word. And I told her this, and she said, well, you know, stars don't emit their own light. And I said, well, thank you for that. There is no light without shadow. I mean, it was just like, it, there's a you, you work for a company called Continuum. You of all people have to understand that there's a cycle here we're talking about. It's not just about you and me. We are podcasting right now having this conversation. But maybe somebody at, at some is in their car somewhere listening to this thing. I want to have a podcast to talk about Neuroscience and neuroplasticity in the brain and I'm gonna bring in artists. I don't know like the whole point is to spawn better easier more mindful more consistent more connected ideas in the world. I mean, that's that's civilization progress
1: and I think that that for me when I Saw witness what I hear what you're saying now and I witnessed what I saw this morning. It's about interaction so you may not like live rhetorically, but what you're trying to get is this tension in this actual interactive dialogue between multiple teams. And
2: we had a few moments this morning. I mean, it is still quick reflections right after the fact, but people asked questions that I thought were better answered by other people who had asked questions previously. And there was a kind of nice moment where we, try, we were able to triangulate the conversation. That, I dare say, would not happen at a TED Talk, where there's so much that's rehearsed, where there's so much that's, in a sense, it becomes canned. Uh, and I just think the one thing I've learned after many years of teaching is that the best moments happen when you least expect them and that's a conversational impulse that why are we shying away from them?
1: I, I have to jump in for a second. Is, is that a technique of yours, is conversational triangulation? And when I say a technique, I don't mean that in a sinister way. I mean, is that a tool you use as a teacher to listen for the connections between students and then point that out as Yes, partner, partner,
2: partner, it absolutely partner, partner, is. is. It absolutely is. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, Uh, at the conclusion of this class I taught based on the book that brought us here today, the final assignment, my teaching assistant came up with this idea. I said, what do we have to do at the end? She said, and she came up with this assignment, which was to to come up with a 13th chapter, write a synopsis, find three pieces in the art gallery that spoke to it, and then what was the assignment? So if, you know, I gave an example of my assignments before, and they were fantastic. So there were chapters on agency, uh, on grit, on all sorts of things, and They each spoke for five minutes and gave these beautiful presentations, and I I took notes. I didn't say a word for two hours, and at the end, I had not planned this. At the end, I talked about how each chapter could also be represented by someone else's object, and we went. It was a different kind of triangulation, where you know, Ken's agency was uh, was Lee's. Van Gogh painting and, and, and that we were able to actually weave through their conversation that they had basically come to a point at the end of this Trajectory of 12 weeks where they so understood the relationship between form and thought and thought and voice and voice and individuality and individual, individuality and in society And I said it's that complicated and it's that simple right and they, and, and then I, and then and then they applauded and then I cried Yes, Professor Helfand burst into tears because I just thought I I, like I didn't expect it to go that way. But but there's a humility to Involving people in in that discursive
1: Moment it's inherently collaborative and it's a you know, you talked about theater. It's a type of theater that involves multiple people So TED talk is one person on a stage It's unilateral Stand up comedy. It's It's comedy
2: and it's and it and it I mean if if we've learned nothing else, I mean you're in the practice of human centered design, there's a reciprocity there. You and your client, the client and the longevity of the success of the enterprise, whether you're looped back in. I mean it's 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 choreographed. You have systems and toolkits, of course you have to we have rules. There's some hierarchy, but we've lost some organic conversational, mindful human piece of this. And that's what the you know, I wrote the book because I wrote the book. And I felt strongly about these things at the time. But I didn't realize that the kinds of people that would read the book and the kinds of conversations that would come after the book, and not just in this class. You know, Ken found the book, and we became became friends online talking about some of these issues. I, I think, you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself because it's really not false humility when I say the book has hit a nerve. But I do want to find a way to get, get out of the classroom, get away from the book. And, you know, is there is there a kind of practice around this? And that's what this event today... Call it an event it sounds like a standalone thing but this this uh, engage sort of this conversation today allowed us to do and 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 I hope we can do it again
1: this this first iteration this
2: first iteration yeah
1: so for me I, I think the the to go back to the book it is a call to uh, you know, speaking as a designer a call to mindfulness of one's own role as a craftsperson and engagement with the thing that you're doing in spite of the fact that as the challenges we face become more and more complicated and we distance ourselves from a user that we're trying to engage and really understand and design for that. We are all also ourselves in the moment designing and acting, and we need to be mindful of that and understand our role in this creation of this new world. Um, and I think there's so many different emotions that you're playing through in the book to uh, that we should be reflecting on as designers. So talk to the range of emotions and, and, how, how far we can push
0: this?
2: Well, I think um, designers are really good at making stuff look cool, uh, at making stuff look shiny. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the world is a shiny place. And so we would be doing ourselves and each other a disservice if we didn't ask some ruthlessly objective questions about what that means. Uh, I wrote an essay long ago called, Can Graphic Design Make You Cry?, uh, I, I said this to a friend of mine, and he said, I make my clients cry all the time. I don't know. I think my clients cry when they see my work. Uh, but I was actually quite serious. You know, what is, what is it uh, to design an epitaph? What is it to understand someone's experience that is not your own? I and mean, we talk a lot about not torpedoing in with imperialist solutions when we work in cultures other than our own. I mean, there's such a humility that is at its core missing in so much of what we do. These are difficult questions uh, to, not, to not appropriate, to not assume, uh, to listen to the experiences of others and to somehow not disavow your own experience. So I sometimes talk about the prismatic lens, how, how there's, there's not one funnel that's taking you to that final solution. Uh, if you look at here's a here's a commercial example if you look at marketing campaigns where in order to create a new brand for something a hashtag goes out and people can like take their own pictures and so you're basically using free people to kind of amplify your message that's one example of inclusive kind of organic feedback loops Um, but it's still kind of canned because it's it's a hashtag it's not going to go very far Mm -hmm. It's not, uh, it's not predicated upon an understanding of a culture or of a people or of a, a kind of systematic, uh, not systematic in terms of the toolkit, but systematic in terms of like the, the engine that drives the human being. The fact that people change and grow. Uh, that, that viral is not a word that is good if you're an epidemiologist or an immunologist, right? <laughs> like we, we're using these words and we're co-opting them and making them our own and there's something just really inappropriate and wrong about that. Uh, so I you know, I just try to sometimes I call attention to the language mm-hmm. um, Sometimes it's about the way we choose to respond to someone else's use of language uh, I, I Was uh, my students sometimes use the euphemism uh, I want to push back on that as though the word to disagree is to is what vituperative. It's like wrong. It's it's just, you know No, you disagree, you know, like we're just the political correctness does not get us very far and so can we actually ask tougher questions more mindfully more compassionately and i have to say too that in the book um this book was written largely in paris when i was on a kind of self-imposed sabbatical after my husband died at 60 from a very brief and kind of punishing illness and that was a real moment for me i mean to take stock of somebody who who was a sort of captain of industry larger than life you know he he died as i said to somebody recently a movie star death he never lost his hair but you know i had to watch my children watch their father's life wind down And, I mean, at the same time, and I've been quite candid about this, uh, IDO was talking about redesigning death. And Tim Brown wrote me a note after the book came out, and he said, "Uh, why didn't you reach out to me about your criticism? And I said, well, maybe it's because I was watching my husband's life wind down in hospice. It wasn't an angry thing. I'm quite a fan of IDO and a lot of what they do. I think Tim's great. But that's an example of hubris. That is an example of... How dare we think we can understand another person's journey towards what is a very final, incomprehensible moment? Whether that person is ill or it's sudden loss is loss. How do you you gonna brand loss? Sorry, we're on the we're on a podcast here. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna use the next word that came into my I, mind, which was not a very nice word.
1: But but I think <laughs> back are, to being mindful. I think we are, and I think firms like continuum and idea we are on a quest for understanding and having a deeper understanding with the challenges that we face mm-hmm. in humanity mm-hmm. and i i do applaud the attempt to try to have a deeper understanding whether to brand it or to redefine it right I, I, that might be going too far but i do think there was an effort and uh to see the world a little bit differently than we've seen it before maybe look at something that we often look away from um far too quickly mm-hmm. um especially in in tough times. Uh, and, and so there's a tension there. And I, how far can we push our quest for understanding mm-hmm. without it feeling too, too commercial and cheap or just I don't know
2: flip? If, I don't know that there's an answer to that. Yeah. Um, I, there's a piece in the book I was writing about being in India and watching uh, women sketching on the ground together. Um, it's really instructive, has been very instructive for me to travel to parts of the world where English is not the lingua franca as much as we might like to think it is. And where the form of communication, by its very nature, is obliged to become visual. So whether it's drawing or sketching or sewing or acting or dancing, that there's some there's some form of communication that is, and I use this word in its pure sense, indigenous vernacular to a vernacular that is not our own. So what is it? What do we do? We take pictures with our cell phones. We put post-it notes up. We try to imbue ourselves with. Aspects of this, but it's like it's like we need to do a homestay, right? We need to basically like move in and absorb we need to you know And that's not the same thing as drinking the Kool-Aid. That's immersion therapy. That's a different kind of thing And then I think to your other point Lee There's a finite nature to deliverables like you get hired you give me money I make the thing for you. I give you the thing you go use the thing Well the thing changes because people change and life changes the world changes the economy changes So economies of scale are not always predictable around those transient sort of metabolic loops beyond our own capacity to understand them. And so that's where I've benefited, I think, to some extent from being part of a, uh, I, I teach in a university as opposed to an art school. So I've always had this feeling that I needed to participate in these languages and cultures other than my own. And there are moments when I feel like a foreign exchange student. There are moments when I think I need design to be, able to participate more that way in the world. But, but it really it shows you that, I, I said you gave this example this morning in our conversation for the chapter on consequence, um, we went across the street 500 yards away from the Norman Foster glass building where all the birds are flying in during migration season and dying because the architect didn't think about that. And there's a lot of glass and birds don't do so well with reflection. But we live across the street from the ornithologist who's a MacArthur winner and who his whole life is birds. And we talked about him. We, we, the students were able to talk to him and do research on what might a design intervention be that respects the life of the birds. So that's not a client human. That's not. Is that bird centered design? <laughs> That's not human-centered design, but it's life-centered design, and I don't mean in the, I'm not being a right-to-lifer here about birds. I guess I am being a right-to-lifer here, but seriously, it's about all living creatures. Those birds need advocates, and we became their advocates, and it was a really transformative moment for those students to realize they could leave the protection of the building, which was, now here's an interesting design conundrum, building designed with lots of glass so that it was transparent, so that people could work and, and huddle and create these very kind of fluid, formal, uh, kind of uh, spontaneous constructions of teams and projects. And yet it's a bubble, like any other bubble in any other university, it suffers from its own sort of tautology in a way, right? It's, it's same old, same old. And so to get them to walk across the street and see those birds and talk to scientists and change their vocabulary and open up their eyes to a different problem... Fantastic,
1: just fantastic. So you just invoked advocacy, and and I think we you know, and did the intro this morning. Uh, Jessica, health and writer, podcaster, uh, painter, artist, designer. Um, just tired advocate, new puppy perhaps. owner. <laughs> perhaps eight weeks old. Eight weeks old puppy owner. Uh, but advocate, I think you are uh, one of the leading advocates on behalf of design within this world, and I think talking to this new audience, business school audience, what have you, um, is basically uh, is a role. Talk about your the responsibility that you have as an advocate for design. Do you feel responsibility? Is there a tension around that? That's such a good, interesting
2: question and a very generous one uh, to, to give me that, that label, which I will take uh, provisionally. Um, I, this is another I blame Quaker School thing, where I really did kind of understand uh, service, not service design, but real service. Uh, the ethics of service. Um, at the same time, when I've, uh, we've been criticized over the years uh, at Design Observer whenever we change uh, tracks, uh, that we're letting go of design criticism. And some people have said to me, they won't remain nameless, or there will be a fatwa out of my head, uh, you are the last bastion of, you know, design criticism. If you let it go, you know, you owe. And I thought, you know, I've been doing this for free since 2003. I've got two kids in college. I don't think I owe. So uh, that, that sounds mean, right? That sounds like, like wait, whoa, Nelly. No, I, I, this is enough already. At the same time, uh, I have always thought design was an international language. I do not understand why there aren't more designers working all over the world, why we do not require students to study a second language in school. Literacy, important to me. Uh, for a while at the School of Art I taught I worked with students only on their writing which kind of sort of sequestered me in a weird world of being so you know I don't want to be an advocate if I'm not doing my own work which sounds selfish but it's true I don't want to be the person who's only facilitating the work of others I was asked to moderate a panel discussion uh, with a rather well-known musician uh, in New York and I and I here was here was what happened My first instinct was, wow, she's famous. My second instinct was, she's famous. That means by proxy, I will be famous if I go interview her. My third instinct was, I hate being on stage. How do I get out of this? And my fourth instinct was, there are better people to do this than me. And I have a friend who's an amazing singer-songwriter, and I immediately recommended him, and I think he's going to do it. Point being, I now recognize in this podcast publicly my own ego fragility. We all have it. The fact that I waver on things that I think I should do but don't want to do. When it came right down to it, I don't want to be sitting there talking about somebody else's work. I'd rather be doing my own work or talking to students. And so the one advantage of being as old as I am is that I'm getting kind of you know, really clear finally about the coordinates framing my existence. And advocacy is certainly one of them, but I won't do it at my own expense. I don't want to just be piloting other people's, I just, I just want to go to my studio and do my own work. In fact, I realized recently, I like making things. I just don't always like making them for other people. So, you know, I struggle with client, with client, you know, like feedback. It's hard. I, I, you know, as a critic, it's hard to be a critic and be criticized.
1: It's interesting because you are sort of describing a, uh, for, forgive this word, maturity. Um, you're sort of letting your humanity make some of the calls. Yeah. And some of the decisions. It's hard. Super hard. Sounds terrifying.
2: It's really—it's like am I am I like short circuiting my my future? Am I? It's like should I go do this thing and then you know meet the man of my dreams or the client of my dreams or or it, what? It's so
1: funny because if, if a designer, a young designer, came in here and said, "I like making things, better, like making things for other people," you would take it the hell out of here. Well, I don't mean, like I, mean,
2: I don't like making things for other yeah, people. Yeah, yeah,
1: which is what you just said, but you said and you call that a, a, a sign of maturity. Yeah. Right. So it really is. It's sort of like it's an opinion you've earned that's backed by your work.
2: I struggle with this, and I, I don't think it's something that I advocate for other people. I, I, yeah. well, no, I want to advocate for other people, but I sometimes have the moment, and this is total, totally true, and I'm embarrassed to admit it, but, you know, where a client. They, clients have become more visual, and they, they're more visually sophisticated, and they tell you what to do, or they say, why can't you make it this? And I want to say, like, I have better taste than you. Just back off. <laughs> and then I think, why am I in this field? And then I go write a book, and I go teach a class, and I go paint a picture, and
1: I'm... So okay. some of that maturity <clears throat> leads to a level of confidence that allows you to make certain calls. Some of that maturity also allows you to understand. Maturity
2: is a euphemism for old age. No, no, no. It's.
1: It, <laughs> it, it, Let me put my I,
2: teeth back in the glass
1: now. It, it's a, it's confidence, right? So to some degree, um, and in certain definitions, and some of that confidence allows you to to be powerful and do different things and and and, and you know kick ass. Um, some of that confidence allows you to say, you know what, I understand my vulnerabilities and my weaknesses, and I'm going to let that drive. And that's okay. And I think that's what's special and where a lot of us are trying to get. Or That's
2: uh, such an interesting way to say it. And I mean, really, that comes back to this morning. Right? I realized I love the engagement of ideas. I love talking to smart people. I love talking to designers who are struggling with, and, and artists and scientists who are struggling with where the boundaries of their discipline lie and how uh, porous those boundaries are or are not. Uh, I think those are important conversations. And um, if I can do them without a podium, I'm going to be really happy.
1: I, you know, I'm, I, as a designer, I am I struggle personally with this notion I don't want to be yet another navel gazing designer that we look back you know 60, 80 years and we think of the icons of design and how they were. The high priests as yes, called, they the, the calls formalists them. right they were just they were willfully doing whatever they wanted to do and the rest of the world had to just come to them and right. accommodate uh, deal with it um, but I think we're working in a world now where it's there's so many different actors there's and users and patients and customers and all this all these different people and yet we still want to be Willful and we, we don't want to let go of that willfulness, and I think that's a real tension It's a real tension doing. and so
2: somebody this morning used the word intention, which is a kind of willfulness uh, It's a kind of responsibility to willfulness uh, The willfulness may not be your will It may be the will of that client or that patient or that stakeholder in some other way uh, But I think you're right. It's a pluralistic notion of, of, of uh, intention uh, and I think that's actually tricky. I, I have just come back to this idea that you said about the, the high priests, though. I, I often have felt that the reason, uh, you know, Helvetica came about and uh, sans serif typefaces and the international style and all those things, there was a kind of don't rock the boat era of, of modernism after the war. I mean, these you, I, I, you I, I often will tell my students to remember what it must have been like to leave the Bauhaus or to be a Jew in 1938 in Europe and... Coming to Black Mountain College or being Joseph Albers, I mean, all of these guys, they, most of them were white men and their wives, many of whom were very talented and, and had reputations in their own right. But it must have been terrifying. And so I think that the kind of neutrality and will that drove their work so much came out of the culture they were working in. And it was wartime culture. There have been two wars in 50 years. And they come to a new country. And there was, it was not a terribly hospitable country for designers or artists. So here we are almost 100 years later and it's inhospitable if you're an immigrant it's maybe more hospitable design tends to like to think of itself as very elastic and malleable but we do like systems and toolkits and so how do we not deliver the same premise and promise to our clients we follow that that sort of regurgitated thing i think it's not going to lead to anything that's truly inclusive or truly progressive for the human race so you know i always joke when people say can design Save the world, you know. I I once wrote a manifesto about this, in which there were things like design is pro- graphic design is probably not going to kill you if it falls on your head, and now I'm not so sure. I think maybe graphic design could kill you if it falls off your off you know the Trump wall or something. I don't know, but I think we have to not be afraid to ask the tough questions.
1: So I want to go back to the vocabulary and language um, and the way that you were kind of framing the book and the one of the words that really stuck out that you were interrogating was the word trending, um, which. It's, you know, it's, it's super transactional, like, oh, this is trending, and therefore it's good. It, where You're having a lot of impact in the whole, but you question that. You just to say the the, there's a problem with the, this notion of trending. It's inherently not impactful, that it will, what is trending now will not be trending soon. Uh, I think the inquiry into some of that language is really powerful, and it was my favorite part of the book.
2: Oh, that's so interesting. Well, uh, viral is a bad word that way. Uh, trending, I mean, I think it's um, the whole notion of cool. Yeah. Um, I remember being a young girl and having a crush on a boy. And my mother saying to me, why do you like him? And I said, because he's cool. And she said, hmm, I wonder what cool is at 60. And now that I'm closer to 60 than I am to that girl, I'm, <laughs> she's right. How could we possibly be I mean, trending in the age of Instagram, in the age of Snapchat? Uh, we, can't, we can't actually ignore its potency. What we have to be mindful of is its currency. And I think the idea that likes and traffic and numbers and followers, and we're all guilty of it. I mean, I have a new puppy. I really like going back to Facebook and seeing that people think she's cute because I think she's cute. I mean, when my children were little, there was no Facebook, so I couldn't do it. I don't know if I would have done it. That's another conversation. But it's really fun to post pictures of the puppy and see that people think she's cute. You know, so who cares? Who cares? It makes you feel good about yourself to know that people no, you're there because we're also disenfranchised. And so there's this kind of, if a tree falls in the forest factor to social media, fine. It's social media, big deal. But Snapchat, you know, it's a kind of planned obsolescence. Trending, not so far afield. Um, so what is it we're telling people that trending is, if not cool for five seconds? And how does that possibly give us any kind of foundation for growth of any real capacity?
1: So I'm curious where we're going with all that because if I kind of rewind not not even that far I would say you know fashion week as it kind of drifts across the world twice a year is a, just a longer durational social media meme or moment or or something that we can we can talk about as as a thread there's acceleration happening so what where are we going after this acceleration happening where in, in, in the 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 Micro fraction of time that some, that you can have an impact with something and glances across people's eyes. It's um, an
2: excellent question. I don't I, for which I certainly do not have the answer, but I can say that it really does make you think about how we privilege patients and the time it takes to come up with an idea, and uh, you know it may not be the answer that clients want because to get to find that sweet spot between when Prada introduces its fall collection and the people at the show who then have that stuff at Zara 10 days later, because they do, what that's doing did disrupt the fashion industry or upend commerce internationally around fabric import. I mean, who knows? And that's happening now everywhere. So another word I'm really cautious of is is disruption because it assumes that you've upended somebody else's well-intentioned plans. It just seems really like uncivil to me. And yet the nature of kind of um, poaching, it really is kind of poaching, right? I've never used that word before in an interview, but I just did. You're not poaching an egg, you're poaching someone's idea. And you're, and you're rewriting the rules of that idea. Hacking is another one, right? So none of these words uh, support the notion that kindness is a value we, we privilege. And speed, on top of any of those words that I just use, does not make it better. It just makes it more vicious. And the cycle continues. So I don't have an MBA. I only teach them. <laughs> As I always,
1: That makes you I, dangerous. I
2: start every lecture by saying, I know nothing about business, but I, I know a little bit about design. So let's start there. And, and I just think that, uh, I don't know, maybe the bubble will burst is the, is the fear that I have. I mean, you know, mindfulness is, is a thing just like design thinking is a thing. I'm not looking to, to, to poach those things either, but but I think we just have to, what's getting lost is our humanity
1: in all of this. So there was one thing that you said, and I think it comes a little bit out of this notion of acceleration and where things are going, but you, there was a line from the book where you said, um, everyone is an autodidact in, t- in terms of technology. What do you actually mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> because, because while it, it's 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 self evident when I when I when you unpack it and you realize we're all kind of come to terms with technology as it kind of drifts through our lives, um, that self learning aspect of it, I think is 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 really is really fascinating.
2: Well, why are we autodidact in terms of technology and not in terms of philosophy or ideas? And the, just the time you spend watching a YouTube video to learn how to, you know animate a ball in, you know uh, after effects is the time you could spend reading you know some Willem flusser on design right you could we don't read anymore uh you know none of us read anymore the way we used to uh because it takes time and we don't privilege time we don't privilege patience we don't privilege the time it takes to do those things and 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 maybe we will at another point um, but certainly in terms of the market gymnastics of the economic cycles that you're talking about. I don't know how you intervene with, I mean, people, people take yoga classes. I think that's how they do, how they intervene, you know, but we just, it's, it's all about speed. And I'm not the first person to say that. I mean, James Gleck's book, Faster was the Bible on that, but it's really fascinating. But being an autodidact is interesting because you see where people are teaching. I mean, I'm sure there's analytics on this. Like what are people watching, you know, cookbook sales are down because people get all their recipes from, from Google. And then they go on YouTube to see how to actually poach that egg. So, I mean, it's fascinating to see how much more visual and computationally aware we are, but the things we're choosing to teach ourselves and then we'll have self-driving cars. So like, you know, goodbye driver's ed,
1: but it's a choice. And I think that's what's powerful Yeah, is acknowledging that when we choose to be autodidacts, expect technology, we're doing opting for that over all the other things we could be thinking about.
2: Also, I, I, I think it's part of this, part of this topic, but not much to say about it, which is that I've always drawn a line between teaching and instruction. Like, you know, to sit there and, and teach somebody how to do a thing. They can, they can do that. They can read a book, how to do that. They can go on YouTube, but, but you know, what are, what are people thinking about? You know, I ask my students, why are you getting an MBA? the answer usually is i want to change the world i want to get ahead and change the world i couldn't find out how to deal with big problems at the level i was therefore i now am equipped with this new degree Uh, and then they go out into the world and many of these companies are hiring these kids uh, and offering them the chance to have their own titles which is really fascinating um, because there's a lot of currency in a title and a lot of power uh, a presumed power in you know the global senior strategist like uh, global like you know that means he like goes to canada twice a week i don't know it could be anything or he could be like really living in you know some de- some developing world so there's hubris in that too um so w- i just think we need to sort of be clear about what we're saying and that comes back to language and um
1: words and so let's just take it back to the conversation yeah. we finished we had one iteration this morning of the next stage um this will continue as I'm sure as you continue teaching and and we iterate and have more of these conversations, I hope that you'll come back and have another one of these conversations with us, having learned things along the way. Um, and we can, we can continue talking. I'm looking at Ken and who's been shepherding this conversation here at Continuum. Um, and I, it was a, Incredible pleasure to talk to you this morning and to talk to you just now and I love our collaboration and me
2: too It's just really you you have been so lovely to me. I work out of an 11 by 22 square foot studio So coming here is just a feast for the eyes and the senses Um, I just want to say one thing before we stop about um, future iterations. My dream For these conversations is that we start to we, we make them open to people who want to come but that we start to invite uh, some less usual suspects uh, into the mix. So, you know, I'm doing this at Google in um, in July, and I have this fantasy that, you know, with Google executives, we bring in the head of antiquities at the Getty or something. Like, what was innovation in Abyssinia? You know, is that, and I'm not trying to be the college professor here, I'm just really interested in how we can get out of our self-congratulatory um, cycles of of, of bubble these bubbles that are kind of protective and not necessarily uh, progressive. Uh, and so I'm hopeful that these conversations can yield a different kind of engagement and conversation and vocabulary and, um, and never again a podium.
1: Well, you're welcome anytime to have a conversation here and bring as many crazy people from all
0: kinds of fields as you like.
2: Thank you, Lee. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you.
0: The Resonance Test Podcast is where we seek out people who are consistently able to go from inspiration and cool ideas to fully implementing them. Innovation in this form can be found in all sorts of fields, from health and tech to food and the workplace, and we love hearing how different people go about doing this repeatedly. Continuum is a global innovation design consultancy with studios in Boston, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. At Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real, Because from our perspective, it's not really innovative until it exists. If you want to learn more about Continuum and the work we do, go to continuuminnovation.com. Thanks to Jessica and Lee for their great conversation today. Numerous thanks to Kip, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Multiple appreciations to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all of his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Pete Chapin. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears.
1: I want to ask you one more question. We're recording now. Oh. Um, and I'm gonna. We're gonna go there, and we don't have to. We can take it out um, if you don't want it to be there. Mm-hmm. And it, imagine this is like um, after the uh, where the credits and you are rolling. Ask, you
2: can ask me like uh, upsetting questions about Bill or anything you want.
1: I'm not. I'm not quite going there, but um, I can uh, handle it. So, um, okay, amazing conversation. So, this, you you said something earlier that that struck me and I kind of struggled with this. So you mentioned that your therapist listens to your podcast. She doesn't. She doesn't. No, but she's going to listen to this one. So that's, so I, I just admitted I'm in therapy. So now, okay. So I too, (laughs) I too am in therapy here. So here we are. Um, And when I had the the, the conversation with you and Michael, um, what, four months ago at Yale, I was really, I had to listen to the conversation to realize I wasn't crazy. Like, was it, was it, was was I good? I don't don't know. I had to, Thank you, you. Great. But, you but, great. but I I, not great. I thought I was a complete... sound like an idiot, which I think most people think when they've done something very impromptu and um, you, you question whether or not you sounded good. So I had this conversation with my therapist about this and I sent her the podcast and I felt really weird. And I was like... And I realized that I sent her the podcast to listen to.
2: To validate that you weren't crazy?
1: Exactly. And I, <laughs> and I, I thought it. that was really really amazing. And I I learned something about myself. I also learned something about the process, which I thought was useful. And I thought just this interaction that we were able to have brought so many emotions out. So I'm, I'm throwing that back at you because you've really done a little confession. Not talking it's about.
2: really interesting. So I, yeah, I mean, I basically went to see a therapist to figure out why I was so afraid of public speaking when I could, I've been basically filibustering for the last four hours here. Right. But, and I haven't figured it out. I mean, because I was an actress in college. But, you know, having a wig and being Roxy Hart in Chicago was very different than being Jessica Helfand on a stage at, at, at a TED Talk. No TED Talks. And we're, we're post-TED. And what do you call it? Alt-TED. Alt-TED. But one of the things that I'm realizing, and I think that this is a very, I, I tend to think I'm very visual. Um, we're all very visual, right? So I see things. And I speculate. And I see the package. I see the, I see the future. I see perfect things. Life isn't perfect. Life is weird and messy. And I I struggle with the messy. I struggle with the ambiguity. I have a binary yes, no, black, white view of the world. So it makes it really easy to to like, you know, pay my taxes and give up. But then there's all this other stuff. Why am I making abstract paintings of tissues? Because there's this other much more viable, lively, real, struggling to comprehend the world part of me that is not fed by that binary sort of proposition. And so one of the things that I've learned in, in talking very difficult years for me, losing a husband and, and reinventing my practice and figuring out this book, and raising two kids alone, is understanding that one day I said to her, I said, you know, I think my mind is a fan. She said, "That's a, I have not heard that before. And I started to think about how, like, you open the fan and then you open the fan again and like, there's all these other options. Right. So this was one day Ken and I were talking and I said, I, I, I conceive of a world in which we can sort through some of these questions, but I'm not standing on a stage. I don't want to get to your, you asked me this point earlier. I wouldn't give a TED talk on this book. I couldn't. It's not about that. It's not about that level of performance. That's, that's for sports and theater. That's not for design and, and engagement with, with the world.
1: I think you're reveling in the uncertainty. I'm reveling, this, this, I'm reveling in the answer. Bizarrely, I'm reveling in the uncertainty. This model gives you access to uncertainty where that stage you would have to be absolutely certain or you wouldn't do it. Right. right. So I think that is the fundamental tension.
2: Yeah. And I think uh, it also gets it. We all have imposter syndrome a little bit. Of course. But, you know, I, I moved to France when I was 10 and I learned French on the street and from my friends. And then I went to school and had to learn how to conjugate verbs. And to this day, I am just unwilling to follow rules in a certain way. And so that's why toolkits and systems i i just you know i i think like an abstract expressionist and i really i have a very sort of uh, difficulty with those kinds of quid pro quo requirements and i think that that's why i write to figure out what i can't make in the studio and i make things to figure out what i can't write and i teach to keep in, myself inspired by the ideas of others and it's just not enough to do it in the classroom and that's why i'm so grateful for your hospitality today and willingness to to take this crazy ride with me, because I do think that this is a, a model whose time has come, and I think we're just getting started.
1: We are. Thank you for taking the ride with us. Thanks.